Welcome to No Bucks Given, the equestrian podcast where we have honest conversations about the horse industry, whether it's debunking common myths in the science or lack thereof behind them, or tackling both sides of controversial social topic, we get to the bottom of what matters most, how to best care and advocate for our horses. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Chuck Arnsberg, a friend of the pod, and we're going to be discussing something that I think is actually both a myth and a little bit of a controversial social topic, which is the development of young horses and the effects that training or not training has on them. So Chuck, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me back. I'm excited. I'm really excited to get into this because I think that you have such a good perspective on this. My understanding of your practice is that you do see a fair amount of race horses. Yeah. Um, and I used to quite a bit more. Horses. Absolutely. Oh, okay. I still, at this point, I do a lot of uh, young uh, thoroughbred racehorses as well, as far as they're uh, focusing on their development, weanlings, uh, yearlings, two-year-olds, but uh, less active racehorses. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people have a lot of concerns um, about pushing a young horse too hard too soon and issues that that's going to cause later on in their life. And I also think just from my personal experience working with horses and riders, I do think that a lot of people uh, have a middle aged to older horse and this middle aged older horse has a lot of issues and they think to themselves, well, what if their young years had been different? Mm. What would have been different? I mean, I personally had an off track thoroughbred Wesley. He had a huge amount of physical and emotional baggage. And I frequently found myself thinking, what if his young career as a racehorse had been different? Would he be a different horse? Would he be better or worse? Mm. Um, and I think that we're going to get into some answers on that today. Yes, for focusing on the formative years, for instance, um, of basically, in essence, becoming an athlete. Absolutely. I do think that Chuck is really good at breaking down um, the science and the research along with me in a way that's super accessible to horse owners, for those of you listening. Um, But I would like to tell you a little bit of my hypothesis on this, just from my personal experience, and I can't wait to hear your opinion. So what I have learned and heard from different sources is that basically the horse's skeleton um, develops from the ground up. And so basically the legs and joints develop first and that the rest of the horse's skeleton, like the neck and the spine, develop later. And basically my thought coming into this episode before I talked with you before we got on air today, work early on for young horses is good for their tendons and bone density, but maybe not good for the long-term effects of their Um, neck and skeleton, leading to things such as kissing spine. But you talked to me about why that might not be true. And I want to just start with why that might not be true before we get into the research. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, as you're talking about making sure that everybody's on the same page, I think we should certainly talk about when you mentioned development. And again, off camera, we were speaking a little bit about growth, like the size of a skeleton um, and what we colloquially call growth plates or the epiphyses, and absolutely, um, the growth plates in general, specifically in horses, but in most vertebrates, close from the ground up, meaning that, for instance, in the short pasture and bone, uh, there's a growth plate. That growth plate has closed. It has finished growing. It has finished turning from cartilage into bone at a very young age, sometimes even in utero. So uh, there's some variability, of course, but if you were to x-ray a foal, on one day of age, some of those foals will have a completely fused growth plate in the pasture 
within one day of birth. As you look up the skeleton, you'll then see the long pastern bone, for instance, uh, immediately above. So P1, um, that has a growth plate. The cannon bone has a growth plate at the bottom, right? So the shin, the shin bone, the cannon bone has a growth plate at the bottom. Going up above the knee, the radius has numerous growth plates. The ulna has growth plates, the uh, humerus, shoulder blade, et cetera, as you go up, and even the spine like you were describing earlier. So I think I, I bring that only up because we, we speak about the skeleton as a young horse and its growth, but then we also talk about this general term development that you'd right. use. And so this thought that I think it's important to think of the skeleton um, as an organ and basically that it's always turning over. It's always mm. developing I think that's such a common misconception. I know before I went into massage school, I really thought that your bones were your bones. Mm. So kind of my interpretation was that exercise and really hard concussion was just kind of degrading the bones and leading to arthritis. Um, And it wasn't until I like kind of dove into some research and then I learned in massage school more about anatomy that um, bones do turn over and actually um, improve when there's a certain level of impact involved. They improve their bone density. So thank you for bringing that up. No, absolutely. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit later, but we talk about microfractures and any stress that... uh, bones need to uh, compress, flex, etc., to then respond to those stimuli. And in response to the stimuli, literally bones can change shape. There's mm. always a tension and a compression surface on the bone. So even if you look from a microscopic level or even just where you look at a skeleton, you're going to see curvature to basically every single bone. And the reason that's true is that you're always going to need to have a compression and a tension surface to create the best strength and allow flexibility. So bone flexes, and we want it to flex. If it's overly dense, it actually stops flexing, and we can lead to catastrophic failure. Um, With any sort of training, this is what we'll probably dive into, literally there will microfractures will occur during that exercise, whether it be a young horse at the racetrack, whether it be a three-day adventure galloping, whether it be a jumper um, schooling over fences. Then, in a perfect world, the next 23 and a half hours, that horse has enough time to literally lay down new bone in response to that stimuli so that it's able to respond appropriately to the next stimuli, basically the next day's training. Uh, and has that been documented that that does happen in 23 hours? Oh, it, not or is necessarily. that kind of like, oh, no, I was just saying the understanding. No, oh, I was saying in a perfect okay. world, okay. the amount of training that you perform on a Monday oh, has okay. healed, has, has created enough of a stimulus okay. to stimulate a change in the bone. Okay. But the bone has been given enough cha- time to, in essence, heal those tiny, tiny, tiny microfractures. When you and I walk down the hallway, you arguably could say that we are creating microfractures, maybe in our heel if we're barefoot. If we were running along the road, maybe in our shins, for instance, um, you might very well be sore the next day um, for any number of different reasons, but hopefully the bone has actually laid down enough new mineral, calcium and phosphorus, um, to create some more bone density um, and create some more strength to (coughs) adequately respond to what, in essence, the skeleton needs to deal with that next day. I I don't want to call it an insult, but in essence, there's a a stimulus and a response, um, and hopefully the body is ready to receive another stimulus. So 
So why don't we, before we dive even more deep into this, actually just touch on a glossary? Okay. Absolutely. Before I dive in, because what you're referencing, my understanding, um, is actually Wolf, Wolf's Law, mm. um, which I remember learning about in school. And as I was preparing for this episode, I saw again, and I was kind mm. of excited. Um, but Wolf's Law uh, essentially states that um, bone will increase in density upon um, stimulus yes. and concussion. Yes. So, um, so there's Wolf's Law, and then another thing I want to touch on was axial versus appendicular mm. skeleton. So for those of you who don't know, um, appendicular, so appendage, that's the portion of the skeleton that um, is your arms and your legs, whereas your axial skeleton is your spine and your pelvis. So it's your um, pelvis, your uh, back uh, portion of your spine as well as your neck portion of your spine and your cranium your mm -hmm. skull um, and it's true that's that's what we refer to um, as axial and appendicular in uh, all mammals mm -hmm. I believe mm -hmm. so it's all vertebrates really all vertebrates yeah. what's the difference between a vertebrate and a mammal uh, well mammals uh, produce uh, they lactate Right. Right. So, okay. Okay. Yeah, they don't so, have eggs, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. some do. Platypuses. Some do. Oh, yeah. platypuses. So there you I go. love platypuses. But they're they're defined as a mammal because they lactate. Okay, that's good mm -hmm. to know. I feel like I should know that my mom's a biologist. She's probably <laughs> like, if she ever listened to this, she'd like be screaming as I asked that. We should definitely start our uh, <laughs> definitions with what a vertebrate versus a mammal is. <laughs> <laughs> um, just looking at this. Oh, yeah. and then you touched on development versus growth versus mm. turnover. And mm. I feel like you have already started to define that, but let's mm. just be super clear before we go forward, mm -hmm. because my misunderstanding of um, when the horse's skeleton develops, so just to be really clear before we dive in, mm. the popular knowledge on the horse internet is that the horse's neck and spine are not finished developing by the time they're eight. Mm. So they, it's, or sorry, the popular information on the internet is that the horse's neck and spine are not finished developing until they're eight. Um, and you told me that that's false. Yeah, I would, I mean, I would certainly would love to uh, touch base, you know, with those particular uh, uh, writers or practitioners. And but I would, I would like to just, um, yeah. you know, as I was uh, researching for this podcast, I could not find any information that backed up mm. that, um, statement. Right. I couldn't find all the research I found um, said that the horse's growth plates were fully finished developing in their body um, in the appendicular skeleton by the time they were two. I didn't find anything really specifically referencing the axial skeleton. Mm. Um, so interestingly enough, so if you were to look at a, a horse's skeleton and uh, radiograph it over time, okay. uh, you'd find that actually the appendicular skeleton uh, finishes... Um, "Quote unquote," um, growing uh, when all the growth plates are finished, are fused and, and complete. Um, the full length of the appendicular limb um, will be closer to thirty-six months or even later. So as you, months. yeah, so three closer years. at least three, if not three, three and a half years. years for the appendicular oh, skeleton. Okay. So, for instance, the growth plate in the distal radius. Okay. Um, which is the bottom of the forearm, right above the knee, immediately before um, above the knee, doesn't close until 18 to 24 months. So that's the knee. That's actually, not the knee, excuse me, that's the radius. So going up the limb, as you started the conversation earlier, uh, when we talked about the humerus, is the upper arm, and then even the shoulder blade is even higher. Those growth plates don't even close until 36 months or longer. Okay, three So and we half commonly, years. I mean, in essence, 
there are horses in training at probably every barn uh, that we're speaking to out there in the internet here um, that have horses that are training or under some development uh, process, uh, some training process that are by definition skeletally immature. Okay. Um, and I think part of that conversation today is not only is that okay, that is our scientific preference to okay. uh, stimulate training, to stimulate bone growth, uh, uh, tendon strength, et cetera, et cetera, prior to the full maturation process of that animal. Um, again, as we talked about developing an athlete, but um, so growth plates, absolutely close from the bottom, from the ground up, like we spoke about, okay. but the horse constantly in any vertebrate and uh, again, mammal, they're developing in the sense that the bone is turning over. So at any period of time, literally on one side of your bone, you have specific cells that are taking calcium and phosphorus and basically mineral away. Those are osteoclasts, C-L-A-S-T-S. And then there are osteoblasts on the other side um, that are, and that's B-L-A-S-T, create new bone. I always say osteoblasts. Um, the way I remember it is B is for build. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I like and that. Clast just is the other one. Oh, and then there's okay. osteocytes as well, right? Osteocytes are basically that's a the these oh, are the subcategories of both osteocytes. Osteocyte literally just means in Latin, and this is about the limit of my Latin is bone cell. Oh, okay. So okay, osteocyte. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so okay, so that's so development versus growth versus. Um, Turnover. Mm -hmm. So horses are always turning over. Always. Yep. You um, are. I am sitting right. here talking on this podcast. Absolutely. And horses um, are also, you know, development versus growth is a little bit like of a hard like in between. Mm -hmm. But we're but what we're choosing to look at for the purpose of this podcast is growth plates. Mm -hmm. And growth plates are done fusing in the axial skeleton. Um, you're saying by around three to uh, four. Appendicular skeleton. Sorry, appendicular right. skeleton. Yeah. Appendicular skeleton is done by around three and a half. Something like that. Generally. There's always going to be variation and certainly okay. breed disposition as well. So Some do you find over. that it depends on the breed or do you think it more depends on the individual or both? Oh, I think in general breed. Yeah, in general absolutely. breed. Okay. Yeah. Do you think thoroughbreds particularly develop faster than warm bloods or cold horses? I would argue horses? they probably do. And again, okay. going back to their axial skeleton, probably. Okay. Um, they probably certainly do. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. And then what are your thoughts on when the axial skeleton's growth plates are finished or... So again, you know, you can easily uh, x-ray a three-year-old um, or sometimes even a four-year-old and still see this, what we talked about, a scar of the growth plate or the epiphysis. So if we're going back to glossary items, so we commonly talk about the physis, the P-H-Y-S-I-S, or the okay. epiphysis, E-P. Um, and so... And sorry, the epiphysis okay. is the soft... Um, portion on top of the bone that interacts with the other bone? Uh, interestingly, yeah, the, the growth plate, maybe we'll just okay. call it, just, let's just call it a growth plate. Sorry, so the epiphysis and the growth plate are not the same thing. They're synonymous. No, they are oh, the same. Oh, no, they yeah, are so the same the thing. The epiphysis. Oh, okay. Um, so the, um, we talk about epiphysitis, for instance, in young growing horridus. Okay. That's just inflammation of the epiphysis or okay. physitis. It's a, the term is thrown around pretty, pretty broadly. Okay. But I think you brought, mentioned a good point. Uh, there is soft tissue there. Literally in what's called, uh, and we don't want to get too down in the weeds, but endosteal ossification is truly the creation of bone from a cartilage precursor. And the growth plate, by definition, boom, is cartilage. 
So when you x-ray a limb or you x-ray a vertebrae in a young horse, for instance, you're going to see bone, black line, bone. That black line is cartilage. Okay. That will become bone over time. It okay. literally, that is the, uh, the wave front. That is where all the turnover is occurring. That's literally lengthening the bone because new bone is being created at that growth plate or at that cartilage. That cartilage oh, is literally turning into okay. bone and the bone lengthens. Okay. So horses literally grow taller because their appendicular skeleton continues to grow. We commonly see, even when we talk about development, we talk about developmental lesions, and we'll talk about this probably later, um, even things like osteochondrosis or OCD, osteochondrosis or chondritis desiccans, a specific form of osteochondrosis, can occur with age, meaning if you were to x-ray a young horse's stifle, for instance, a foal stifle, a lot of that stifle looks, it's just cartilage, and it hasn't turned into bone. So you would not be able to define that a horse has a OCD lesion at a young age. So you might x-ray the entire horse as a weanling. Okay. Everything looks good. Growth plates are in place. You know, everything looks fine. You x-ray that horse 18 months later, and lo and behold, now it has an OCD and it's stifle. And that's literally because, the, again, the skeleton is maturing from the ground up. And that bone essentially didn't appear there. It didn't It just exist. wasn't even, pre- yeah, it wasn't it even present previously. It was cartilage okay. at that point. I do want to come back to OCDs, yeah. but I want to dive into the research mm. first. But I did just want to make like a little like note slash disclaimer. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wanted to say before we dive into this episode that me and you are not trainers. Oh, that's true. Um, yeah. Because I do think that, you know, we're talking about this and what's best for young horses from a physical perspective, from the research that has been shown time and time again. Mm-hmm. All the research we're talking about is not just, I'm not just finding one little niche study and referencing right. it, which is something I do on this podcast because there's only so much research, but on horses in general. But the specifically what we're talking about today um, has been proven time and time again. Um, but I do want to say we're not trainers. We're talking about what's good for horses from a uh, physiological standpoint, we're not talking about what horse it, what is best for your horse mentally. And we just want to make this podcast in terms of giving people the best information they can for the decisions that they make with their horse. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that, you know, listening to this podcast, you can just go and necessarily directly apply it. We're just I think it's a great about, point. That's a great, every yeah, every animal, every athlete is uh, individual, yeah. right? And they all have right. to be trained as such. Um, but absolutely, the, the science is the science and the, the right. biology is the biology. And so I think that's what we'll probably focus on today. Yeah. Um, but uh, so we can tell, we can probably guide you as far as like what your horse's skeleton could probably sustain. <laughs> um, right. But uh, absolutely between the ears is equally important. Yes, so. absolutely. All right. So as we dive in, um, the research study that I'm going to be referencing a lot today um, is a meta-analysis that is comprised of a bunch of different studies. And I am going to link it in the show notes. And it's just called Training Young Horses, The Science Behind the Benefits. Mm. Um, And it will be linked in the show notes because a meta-analysis is made up of a bunch of different research articles and basically comparing them to draw a broad conclusion. Um, But... 
I just wanted to start out off with the um, introduction to the article, mm. which is the evaluation of numerous studies on the topic produces evidence that a horse which is trained or raced as a two-year-old has a lower risk of injury and better adapted tissues for the rigors of racing. So all the research, we're, almost all of the research mm. we're going to be referencing today is specifically on thoroughbreds. Um, because that's what is most readily available to us. Um, Chuck was telling me before we started the podcast, thoroughbreds are just much easier to research because there's so much data available when looking at race records than most of the other breeds or, and um, disciplines. Absolutely. Objective but data, right? You've got objective. Da data points basically based on earnings. At the end of the day, that's the, that's the measure, right, of success in racing. Right or wrong, that is the measurement of success, is how much did that horse win through its career? Absolutely. And, you know, I was so surprised going through this because I've always um, heard um, from different people who are horse advocates that it's super detrimental to star a horse too young. Mm. Um, but really, as I went through reading this meta-analysis, um, it really proves that uh, from a bone density and physiological standpoint, Horses do a lot better um, being introduced to exercise young um, and not just a low amount of exercise, as we'll get into, like sprinting, hard yes. exercise um, is actually what's needed to build that bone density. Oh, absolutely. If uh, And that's been proven, proven again. There's a huge, huge study um, basically by David Nunnemaker decades ago out of New Bolton Center so in our backyard, specifically talking about what's called colloquially buck shins in racehorses, right? In, in young racehorses early in training. All that is is a periosteal reaction. That is literally new bone being laid down on the front of the metacarpus, um, which is the shin, again, um, uh, the cannon bone. And that can develop into significant pain. So what's similar in humans to shin splints. Right. And absolutely all the research shows that um, multiple race-paced short bouts of exercise um, are dramatically better uh, for bone turnover and bone density and bone strength than endless, long, slow galloping, for instance. Or when they breeze or train it. Uh, close to race paces is nearly as good as actually breezing at full race pace. Um, it's not good enough, in essence, to train your horse at 85% um, of what it's going to be asked to do. It needs to train at 100%, if not 105% of what it's going to be asked to do, so that when you do ask it, the skeleton, the tendons, the ligaments, all the soft tissues, the heart, the lungs can sustain that, that demand. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so going into um, starting to read more and research for this podcast, um, I had that hypothesis I said mm. at the beginning of the episode that it's good for the appendicular skeleton to work hard, but might be bad for the axial mm. skeleton because kind of like, you know, you've heard so many different people hypothesize that possibly things like kissing spine and neck arthritis and even, uh, pelvic issues and SI issues might be caused by uh, horses working too hard too young and absorbing all that concussion on a spine that isn't fully developed. Um, so as I was reading this, what I was thinking, because, you know, I read the first few articles um, 
about how uh, it really improves bone density to work hard. Um, but what I was thinking is, well, maybe you could have the best of both worlds. Like maybe if you just did a lot of long, slow distance, you would be able to build that uh, bone density while not um, – injuring the axial skeleton mm. but uh, the research shows that that isn't true yeah. you cannot get the con you cannot get the bone density benefits with just walking and i can even um reference that a study by spooner and colleagues revealed that even five months of endurance training in which two-year-old arabians were trained to perform a 60 kilometer endurance test every three weeks failed to increase bone mineral content of mm -hmm. the third metacarpal so that's super interesting i mean that's a very high level of endurance that's mm -hmm. not just taking your young horse out for a hack that's a huge amount of long slow distance work and it did not increase bone density Just other things for the heart and lungs, mitochondrial, uh, right. you know, development, et cetera, but, um, you know, aerobic base, um, but it is not helping the musculoskeletal system yeah. at all. Yeah. I do want to get a little bit like philosophical with you on this though. And mm -hmm. I don't know if you'll be an able to answer this question, but I guess maybe some of my question, because w we get into the fact that bone density is so it's so beneficial for bone density. And actually there was research that showed that um, ra racehorses had less breakdowns and less injury in their career when they were started younger, yes. when they were started at two instead of three. That's what we always refer to. This is a, truly a monumental study um, that has absolutely shown better success for horses that are started at a young age, absolutely. Which is a huge deal, but my but my question to that is, because just looking at that endurance study, well, you know, for example, if I, I'm a dressage rider, mm -hmm. as you know, is it necessary for me as a dressage rider to necessarily have my horse have a high level of bone density? That's my question too, because yeah. what if for race horses, it is best for them to start young, but for dressage horses, for example, or other jumping horses, or whatever. What if it is better to delay it? What do you think about that? It's an interesting question. I think um, two parts, um, and I, you gotta help me make sure we come back to the the second part because oftentimes okay. I'll, I'll start <laughs> digging too deep on the first part. Um, I want to just touch base on bone density briefly. Okay. Um, more is not always better. Ooh, okay. So we need to be really, really careful about okay. that. So we talk about when bone turnover, which you mentioned earlier, we talked about uh, a little bit there. Um, there's a phrase called uh, like bone density modulation. And uh, many of the people in the podcast have probably heard of uh, bisphosphonates and things like tildren, telodronate, um, or I osphos. I have not heard of no? bisphos. Oh, oh, osphos. Yeah, osphos oh. is a bisphosphonate. So <laughs> you use the, oh, I'm sorry. Use the medical name. Yeah, going back, just back and forth between uh, the brand names and the, the drug classes. Um, or uh, postmenopausal women and bone density uh, oftentimes are put on a medication like Beniva, which is a you know uh, nitrogenous uh, bisphosphonate. Without getting too deep, the purpose of those medications is not just to increase more bone density, but it's actually to modulate bone density. So too little bone is detrimental, whether it be in a horse, whether it be in a a post-menopausal post woman's uh, pelvis, for instance. But too much bone density is equally a risk. So, um, again, when we talk about the strength of a, of a just a, this is just physics, but just basically uh, stiffness, um, if you have an increased stiffness, it's a risk. 
um, if we have too much bone density, there's a risk that we aren't able to flex the bones enough. Without enough flexion, you could lead to a catastrophic breakdown. So there are, there are diseases in horses where we see too little bone density, and there are diseases in horses that we see too much. So that's one thing I just want to touch base on. That's really good to know. So I do not want my horse to be like that Unbreakable movie. No, no, Where no, he no. like goes, have you seen the movie? You know I'm, I'm, I'm very about? familiar with it. Absolutely. Okay. So, and that brings up another point, which in this meta-analysis, there was another article that showed that there is definitely such a thing as too much sprinting um, mm. that leads to breakdown. There's yep. an optimal amount Absolutely. of um, exercise to increase bone density and strength, but there is absolutely such a thing as too much. Yes, and that goes back to the um, the sort of landmark paper um, that I referred to earlier about the shin, um, because when you develop peri- or when a young horse can develop periostitis and uh, buck shins, for instance, um, if you continue with that horse and continue and continue and continue, that will lead to an increase in stiffness and will, could eventually lead to what's called a dorsal cortical fracture, where they actually will crack and and wow. break that bone. Um, so absolutely, that's a result of uh, either inappropriate training or too much or too frequent training. So it's a it's a, uh, a continuum, but it's absolutely been shown again and again and again. Frequent high efforts um, are way way better than uh, infrequent less than one hundred percent efforts by all means. Um, but if that what you describe that that uh, if we go the, increase frequency too much, if you go and do uh, sprints or intervals every single day, that skeleton won't be able to recover in those 23 and a half hours till the next day. And so then you accumulate microfractures. We want microfractures in general right. because then the body responds to them, lays down new bone, lays down bone in different locations in the skeleton and the, in the actual particular bone. But we don't want to accumulate microfractures mm-hmm. because over the course of days and weeks and months, they will lead to a catastrophic injury. And they're specific, you know, in each discipline, whether it be a dressage horse, whether it be an eventer, whether it be a racehorse, um, do the demands on those animals in the sporting endeavors, uh, different catastrophic fractures can occur because of the accumulation of these microfractures. So, sure, we're doing a good amount of, I'm going to say open air quotes, damage to the skeleton on a Monday. We just want it to heal by Tuesday so we can um, safely train that horse. But if you were to keep going, keep going, keep going, they would accumulate and we could lead to a really, really big problem. I love that you brought that up because as I was reading through everything, I found myself thinking about what we talked about on your first episode, which was rest. Mm. And um, what I call this your stair-step method Mm. um, when I talked to you about it, which is having periods of high-intensity work, but then allowing the body to rest and recover Mm. to negate – like to, an accumulation, yeah, right? To, I mean, yeah, to negate the accumulation damage. of those uh, micro injuries that yeah. lead to a catastrophic And that's the injury. same, exactly, same type of micro injuries can occur in the tendons and ligaments. Those are, those are not, they don't oftentimes occur in a vacuum. They have occurred because of months and months and months of uh, efforts. Absolutely. So something else that this uh, meta-analysis went over was turnout. Hmm. Um, and what I've noticed being in the race world, working on horses is that horses are kept in a lot. 
Um, but it does seem like uh, they do turn them out in the off season, which I like. But the research did say that, um, surprise, surprise, uh, turnout did lead to a lot less injuries yeah. long term in young horses. Just going to look at this really quickly. Um, I think one of the wor- you know, as you're looking there, one of the worst right. things we can do is if a horse has a, uh, in a young age, um, has a significant injury, f- perhaps from a stall injury or even a turnout injury, and requires stall rest, that will set that animal back dramatically. It's not running and competing with its friends. Anytime you turn two foals out, you'll see. Uh, these are prey species, which we've talked about. They're competitive in nature. Um, they have to be to protect themselves, right, in, in nature. Um, and if you've got a horse that's on stall rest, you're dramatically and quickly decreasing bone density, detraining the cardiovascular system, detraining uh, uh, the pulmonary system, in essence, detraining the tendons and ligaments. Um, there is a... a well-known common problem with when you have a horse on stall rest for any reason. It could have colicked. It could have had an eye problem. There is a dramatic increase in potential catastrophic breakdown soon after resumption of training. That's just so. what I was about to mention is that that was referenced in the research. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the number one cause of catastrophic injury in young racehorses is a period of rest yes. before going back out. So does that bring up a point which is this, uh, which is that the training we were talking about, um, you know, it, that just goes to show again how important it is mm-hmm. because – uh, they need to have that bone density, even if, um, even if they're only on stall rest a short amount of time, um, they can go. They need to reestablish that bone density to protect them against from the against those catastrophic mm-hmm. injuries. If you if you remove the stimulus, the body immediately stops responding, but there's no stimulus to respond to. And so, if you remove that training stimulus, the body is no longer going to be laying down bone in response to the specific areas of, you know, tension or compression that are occurring on that long bone uh, during training. Um, So absolutely, they will preferentially lose calcium and phosphorus from their skeleton uh, with any activity. Absolutely. If you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's essentially Wolf's law. And it goes back to that idea of, you know, the bone or the skeleton as an organ. You know, it's constantly turning over. It's constantly changing. It's a dynamic process. Um, You've got to consider it as a, a living organism unto itself. It's not static. The skeleton is not static. Um, we talked about growth and we talked about the length of bones, et cetera, you know, earlier on in a horse's career, but it's changing in a 20-year-old Grand Prix dressage horse. You know. That's cool. So, you know, now my question is when it comes to that stall rest, so let's say I did have a horse that was on stall rest for a month because of a colic. What should that re? What should that timeline look like in terms of rebuilding that bone density? You know, you referenced, you told me earlier um, before we started recording that bone is a four-letter word, mm. and it takes four months to. Did you say what was the word you used? Four months to replace. It basically rebuild. It, it, yeah, it completely yeah. turns over. So as okay. I was describing, you know, in, in essence, uh, we've got this constant uh, give and take between the osteoblast and the osteoclast. But absolutely, within ninety to one hundred and twenty days. Uh, the simple uh, answer to your question is the calcium that you have, the phosphorus that you have in your, in your skeleton is gone. It has been replaced. Um, it's been uh, 
uh, taken back into your bloodstream. Perhaps some of it's been urinated out. You've absorbed more from your diet. That's been integrated into your skeleton. So, yeah, within 120 days, the bone that you have, the skeleton you have was not the skeleton you had in the summer. You have a new skeleton three to four times a year. So would it be safe to assume if your horse was on saw rest for more than four months that you would have to really take a long time? You're starting over. You're essentially starting over. Mm-hmm. So what do you have any rules of thumb? I know I know every horse in situation mm-hmm. is an individual, but you know, for example, what's coming to my mind, is it kind of like as long as they were on stall rest, you have to take that time before getting them back into full work? So like a month a month mm-hmm. on stall rest, they'd have to take at least a month before getting back to full work. Mm-hmm. Or is it longer, shorter? Does it really just depend? That's really interesting. So I mean again, if you look um I don't know if there's an easy answer for that, yeah. um, like a direct ratio, for instance. Right. But if you were to think about the progress, again, let's, let's go back again. I know we're talking a lot about racehorses, but this is pertinent yeah. to everything. Again, we've got a lot of data on racehorses. But um, if you look back at that, a yearling will be started or broken or backed. Pick your, pick your uh, terminology. Um, usually at around 18 months old or even less, 16 to 18 months based on when it was um, born. So if we have a May or June full that foal is probably going to start getting backed in October of its yearling year. Um, so I bring that up. That horse might make it to the racetrack, for instance, um, within six months of that time. You know, there are young two-year-old races at various tracks around the country. Um, so we're talking months. If a horse was off, I guess my point in that uh, analogy is that if a horse was off for four months because of any injury, regardless of what cause or what body system, yeah. you're going to be looking at four to six months at least to bring it back to full skeletal uh, strength. Where it was before. That's that's a really important clarification, but it does actually bring me back to my question that I don't think we quite fleshed out, mm. which is how important is bone density um, to horse sports that aren't high impact, you know? So I think that everything we're talking about with racehorses is pretty directly relevant to obviously racehorses, mm-hmm. eventers, um, maybe even, uh, most jumpers because it is such a high impact. Yep. But I think of sports such as dressage, reining, a lot of the Western sports, I think of those sports as harder on the soft tissue structures. Mm-hmm. I certainly think that's fair. Um, I think I would, uh, the corollary to that, or if I could add something to that, is that the, the soft tissues have to connect somewhere. And so that suspensory ligament in a dressage horse, it starts at bone and ends at bone. So that interface is essential. Um, that integration, basically, of those ligament fibers literally into the, uh, the periosteum and then the cortex of a bone. So the outer layer of a bone, a very thin fibrous layer is called the periosteum with all the nerve supply. And then the cortex is the dense <coughs> cylindrical uh, aspect of the bone. So when we talk about a suspensory, you know, it literally originates at the back of the cannon bone right at the top. Um, and then it integrates directly into the sesamoids. And then it continues as the quote unquote XYZ ligaments, right? The distal sesamoid ligaments. And they again attach at different structures, uh, bony structures in the pastern. Um, and so I, w- I guess I would argue that even a soft tissue injury does not occur in a vacuum. That is directly, re- those are directly related to uh, bone ligament interfaces. So we were talking about bone density, and I was asking about how relevant bone density is to not as concussive sports, such mm. as 
dressage horses. And you were saying um, that uh, the tendons and ligaments attach to the bone, so it is important. But I guess my other question is, uh, is it safe to assume that those tendons and ligaments are uh, developing uh, strength and durability alongside bone density? And, you know, all the research on thoroughbreds um, in bone density, why aren't we looking at tendons? Is it because it's hard to measure um, their strength improving? Two really good uh, questions, right? I think let's, um, let's touch base on the second one first. Okay. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the quick, easy answer is um, there are few, if any, good, reputable ways to measure soft tissue strength. Mm-hmm. non-invasively. Okay. We absolutely can do pathology. You can put them, you can measure the strength of the soft, t- soft, tissue, in, uh, soft tissue to failure, for instance, in a rig, in a jig, basically. Yeah. Um, but that's with a horse that's no longer with us. Um, now I'm coughing. <coughs> Excuse me. So absolutely, there's, uh, there's no safe, non-invasive manner in which to measure uh, soft tissue strength currently. On the other side, there are a number of different ways to measure not only bone density, but strength um, with acoustic measurements through bone and um, through CT, a computed tomography. So for instance, uh, computed tomography is a manner in which we can actually measure uh, true bone density um, and uh, can also measure uh, indirectly strength and we okay. just don't have that option available to us in a um, uh, well-accepted manner in soft tissues. When you say well-accepted manner, just just out of curiosity, mm. what is the not well-accepted manner? Mm. Well, no, I, I don't mean to say that it's, it, it's not going to prove itself out. Um, okay. But there are a number of, um, there's a European company, for instance, um, that is trying to objectively measure uh, tendon strength, for instance. Oh, cool. Um, but it's skin, just, but it's not, not like, it's basically, sorry, so my understanding mm. is basically uh, there isn't anything massively available. Oh, yeah, can, exactly. Yeah. Commonly available. Commonly available. Or when I say yeah. widely accepted, I mean, it's not something that, that we're, everybody's got in the back of their truck. And has because it hasn't Exactly. Yeah. It hasn't been right. proven out completely. But that's what we need to. We, the problem is, you know, even when we talk about soft tissue injuries, Ultrasonographically, they're going to look way better on our computer screen than they actually are strength-wise, or um, meaning that they heal, again, I put this in open air quotes, ultrasonographically way faster than they actually heal, heal in life. Um, Why? Because ultrasound's not sensitive enough uh, to analyze those cross links basically okay, th- cool. even even with three-dimensional structure we're talking about things that are millimeters in size versus right. nanometers in size okay. talking about uh, cross-linking between different fibers etc there's no good way without unfortunately again cytology meaning you're taking a slide a sample a an invasive procedure to right. take a biopsy in essence. Right, on a dead horse. No, right, right. no one right. wants to biopsy the soft tissue of a live horse if we don't have to. Right. Um, so again, we need to search for uh, non-invasive manners in which to better measure tendon and ligament strength. And there are a couple. Um, okay. uh, again, some acoustic modeling and things like that. Um, 
some ideas of blood flow, et cetera. Um, but, you know, the, again, the problem with um, soft tissues um, is there's not a lot of cells to regenerate. You know, at the end of the day, most of the soft tissues, it's ECM or extracellular matrix. It's not a lot of tendon fibers in there. There are not a lot of ligament fibers, or not fibers, excuse me, cells, right, that are producing new ECM, um, similar with cartilage. Um, so when we're talking about the musculoskeletal system, we have to be uh, careful of not damaging the few cells that are there um, because those are what are responsible for creating repair mechanisms. So we have to be very protective of the tendons in short. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think it's, you know, going back to what you said, I think it's safe to say that absolutely, you know, every tendon attaches to a bone, every ligament attaches to a bone. That interface is essential. And um, as we're training the musculoskeletal system, we're not training just one in a vacuum. We're treating the, right. the whole treating skeleton, the whole basically. Yeah, absolutely. So it is fair to assume that this study does absolutely have applications to less concussive sports. Oh, by Such all means, by all means, awesome. absolutely. And hopefully we get to a point where we can objectively measure uh, strength and elasticity again, because we want those soft tissues to, they're basically glorified rubber bands, right? And so right. we want them to be able to stretch. We want them to be able to store potential energy like a spring and then release it like a like suspensory ligament, for instance. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And just to, just to clarify on that, um, what you're mentioning there uh, is that after a soft tissue structure, such as a tendon, is injured, mm -hmm. the way that it tends to heal um, is in a zigzag pattern that's less flexible instead of the traditional way. Yeah. Disorganized, so, in essence, it's so scar tissue. Fibers. And so a lot yeah. of times in rehab, what we end up doing is we, we try to load those ligaments in a symmetric manner, or those soft tissues in a symmetric manner, um, in a controlled manner. Um, so that any healing that does occur occurs in the same linear uh, uh, shape or the same uh, linearity as the fibers that are not damaged. And so we're preserving the internal architecture of a soft tissue. Hopefully, that's our goal over time, okay. so that we don't take a rubber band that's 12 inches long with a two-inch damage piece of damaged uh, rubber band in the middle. Um, you know, that's only then 10 inches worth of. Uh, uh, elasticity there, you know, and so we're still asking the horse to do the same thing with less um, ability to stretch. And so then on each individual remaining fiber, we potentially have a situation if we don't have adequate healing that um, they're going to sustain, every individual fiber is going to sustain more uh, strain and more risk of damage because it's low being, each individual fiber is being loaded more than it physiologically can withstand. Right, right, because if you imagined like a rubber band stretching um, and then it breaks and you like tie it back together. Mm. Sorry, I'm just trying to like yeah. break this down in a way uh, for those of you listening, if you don't quite have the biology background. Um, you know, if you imagine that rubber band breaking and you like kind of tied it back together, um, you could pretty easily imagine that if uh, it was placed under strain again um, because it's shorter and less flexible. Exactly. Because of that knot, basically other parts of that rubber band would start to break as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because, again, we're asking that soft tissue structure to do the same thing, gallop the same speed, jump the same height, you know. Um, and so each individual part of the remaining fiber has to uh, withstand more load. Absolutely. So... 
as I went through all of this, I was still trying to prove my original hypothesis, um, which was uh, that long term, all this concussive work might still be damaging to the axial skeleton. And my only issue with um, all this really cool research showing that starting younger is better for the horses um, was that they weren't looking at any horses that were in their teens, mm. right? Like they were showing that starting a racehorse at two led to less damage throughout their race career than starting at three or four. But they weren't looking at that thoroughbred when it was rehomed at 15 or 16. That's a great, great point. Um, and I did try to find um, more long scope studies, but I couldn't, mm -hmm. um, which I'm sure is just because I'm sure that that's a hard thing to study and keep mm -hmm. track of all those horses in a lifetime study. But what I did also want to look at was um, if the same thing was true for other disciplines, mm -hmm. um, which is starting younger leads to a longer and healthier career or at least less injuries mm -hmm. within that span of time. And the only article I was able to find on that um, was uh, examination of longevity in dressage horses, which was a comparison between sport horses in New Zealand and Hanoverians in Germany. Mm -hmm. um, and basically uh, what they found was that the younger a horse was when it achieved its first placing at a show. So basically the younger it was at when it went to its first show, the longer its career was, which partially I think is because, well, they started younger, so they had a longer time to be able to get started, right? Like if you both started, if one horse started at four and the other horse started at seven or eight, of course the one that's four has, even if they both end at the same age, if they both go to the time they're 17, the one that started younger does have a longer career. But um I did think that that was interesting um, because it does seem like anecdotally a lot of people um, in my industry are starting to shy away from starting horses too young. I mean, I think that it's kind of dividing. My What I've noticed um, is that it seems like the horse world is a little bit dividing into two camps. Either people are sticking with kind of the um, more traditional way, which is starting horses still pretty young and maybe even doing things like materials and mm -hmm. dressage or the young event horse or, um, you know, Stuff like that, doing a lot with young horses to prove their worthiness, essentially, um, and get them out at a young age and really exposed to things so that by the time they're in a more middle to older age, A, they're worth a lot of money when they're young and they're doing those, but also um, you have that much longer to get them to Grand Prix or whatever, you know, because it does take a really long time to develop a horse up the levels. So I can understand from a time and money perspective, wanting to start younger. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people um, in the other camp have been saying, well, that has super long bad negative long-term effects on horses you know and i think that a lot of those people saying that are horses who have had middle to older horses with developmental issues um saying that you know this wouldn't have happened if that horse hadn't been started super young you know we're looking at things like kissing spine neck arthritis um joint arthritis hawk arthritis and you know i my personal opinion, after everything we've, uh, everything I've read for this podcast and talking to you, um, is that I don't think that you can necessarily uh, draw that conclusion. Yeah. 
Um, you know, I think that it would be a really excellent thing to study. Um, but it does seem like starting young and getting that super, um, getting in um, and working the horse when they're young and growing because they have so much more of that ability in their body to grow and adapt and change actually can set them up for long-term success Absolutely. and longevity. Absolutely. And you, you've, you know, you've mentioned the two studies, uh, for instance, here talking about sport horses in one example and talking about racehorse in another. In essence, starting a horse at a young age is protective, um, yeah. hands down. Absolutely. Um, we're not talking about going and, and breezing horse at uh, two year old, you know, two years old uh, every four days. Um, and we're not talking about, uh, you know, doing Piaf and Passage. Uh, uh, on know. a five or six year old. No, we're <clears throat> exactly. not talking about that. But we are talking about maybe it isn't a bad thing to break a horse younger and to get them started with a job. Absolutely. Not necessarily a mentally and physical like demanding mm -hmm. high pressure job, but having a job at a young age can have really good longevity. The science effects. proves it out. The science yeah, proves it the out. The science does prove the it. The physiology, right? Uh, right. Again, we talk about turnover. We talk about growth. We talk about development. Um, in essence, those horses are in essence developing faster at a younger age. No one would expect uh, an Olympic caliber athlete to start their career at 20. Exactly. Um, you know, you know, you've got swimmers who are in the pool at five. Um, you've got runners who um, maybe came from other sports, um, but uh, you know it takes years and years and years to develop. But also, that skeleton has more repair mechanisms at a younger age. That then, when I talk about skeleton, not just the bone, but we're talking about just the the turnover of tendon, ligament, and we talked about the few cells that there are, um, regenerative capabilities, circulating stem cells, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, young vertebrates, young mammals, young horses, young athletes um, are more adaptable, period. Um, right. And in essence, you can uh, guide the development of that animal. If we know what that purpose, that animal is purposely bred for and what the goals for that animal are, um, I can see no reason not to push them in that direction, right? And so you gradually build up what we're asking of them. You make sure that uh, the movements you do in dressage, on, on the flat, um, the height of jumps that you jump for, you know, for the jumper. Um, you're not gonna go jump them five feet tomorrow, um, but you're gonna go put them over uh, on cross rails at a yeah. young age. Um, you are uh, systematically strengthening um, the entire skeleton um, over time so that they can sustain exercise um, and they can withstand the rigors of that exercise and be able to compete again the next day or the next week. Um, so absolutely, absolutely. And I think absolutely. one thing that we're talking about, and uh, maybe this gets us off the subject a little bit or swings us around possibly, yeah. is you know, we started the conversation by talking about the difference between the axial and appendicular skeleton. And I wonder um, if some of the hypotheses that you made and, and uh, some of the uh, things that people um, sort of feel or believe um, might just be related to the fact that at the end of the day, um, the appendicular skeleton is weight-bearing and the axial skeleton is not weight-bearing. And Well, and, isn't the axial skeleton weight-bearing when a person rides them, though? Oh, that's a good point. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Excuse me. That's absolutely a good point. Um, but, um, but I guess horses didn't evolve to carry people. Yeah, right, this so, goes back to the DSP issue, yeah, right? Like you're yeah. sort of touching on, and we, we right. don't want to get too far down 
um, specific diseases necessarily. But I think it's important that at the end of the day, a horse is weight bearing on its limbs 24 hours a day, right? And so that goes back to the idea of turnout, right? Mm, They are truly being stressed and strained more turned out than they are sitting in a stall. Um, They're not being ridden 24 hours a day. They're only being ridden 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an endurance horse, a couple hours. But the dramatic vast majority of their life, they are still standing, right? And so when we talk about weight-bearing and non-weight-bearing activity in humans, for instance, bone strength is directly related to weight-bearing activity. So cycling, swimming, um, not good for bone density, period. Um, Weightlifting, absolutely. Running, absolutely. And so even in human athletics, uh, we have issues with this where you switch between a weight-bearing and non-weight-bearing um, uh, sport, for instance. That makes sense as to why swimmers do weightlifting. Because I, I never, like, I didn't really think that hard about it. I just assumed, you know, it was cross-training. But that does make sense that swimmers do weightlifting to continue to improve their bone density and uh, tendon Absolutely. durability. Absolutely. I mean, even when you look at the cardiovascular system, right. swimmers' hearts are dramatically different. Uh, than runners' hearts, even with the same, uh, you know, VO2 max. If you if you compare um, the athletic abilities of a of a human, for instance, the literal structure of the heart is different. Um, not even because of necessarily the uh, demands um, on the on the human, but just the fact that you're in a different plane. You're horizontal versus vertical, and you're in a non gravity situation in the pool. Um, so you can actually look at a heart and tell if it was a, a swimmer versus a runner or a cyclist or something along those lines. But we're getting way off track now. No, no, you're not. No, well, I was actually going to go there as well because the what jumps to mind for me is um, two things. One, if you look at a gymnast, you know, mm-hmm. they start when they're three. Mm-hmm. And you can look at a gymnast and know they're a gymnast. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that there is something to be said for starting young and allowing your body to develop for what you want it to do. And, you know, just this is a very anecdotal story, but it's been in the back of my mind throughout this episode. Um, You know, I work on a lot of horses in a day, a lot higher than my industry average. Mm -hmm. So I average like between 20 to 30 horses in a week that I think that my industry average is maybe more like 10 horses Mm -hmm. a week. And I was kind of talking to a friend of mine who's a farrier, and he is older, and he still does a huge amount of horses. Mm -hmm. And he's been doing horses um, for a very long time. And I said, hey, like, how have you been doing this for this long? You know, do you think you have better body mechanics? Mm -hmm. You know, what are you doing to save yourself? Because you can do way more horses than anyone else I know. And he said, you know, honestly, I started really young. Yeah. And he was like, I started when I was around 20, and I am I do way better than any of the guys who started when they were in their 30s. Absolutely. And I noticed the exact same thing. Because m- for most people, massage therapy is not their first career. You know, when I went through um, massage school, for example, I was 20. And most of, I would say the average age was 35. All those people had a lot of issues as they went through school, only working on one or two people a day. I've always been able to work on a lot of people and a lot of horses, and I hope that I will be for a long time because I had the opportunity when I was young, and I have all these systems in my body that are still really fresh 
to develop my body and get it strong for the job that I wanted to do. And that's kind of what I think is happening here is, yes, absolutely, we have no research on um, horses over a 20-year lifespan or even a 10-year long um, career span, and I really wish that we did. But if the science is showing that at least even in a five-year span, horses are having many less, like significantly less catastrophic injuries when they start young, why wouldn't we listen to that? You bring up a great example of the gymnast. I think there are two issues there. one is, you know, um, this idea of causation, right? Yeah. Are gymnasts small and lithe and flexible because they're gymnasts? Ooh, Did we create, yeah. have we shrunk the, the child, the well, three-year-old? You know, so right? I really wanted to ask you that. Yeah, selecting? Success yeah. is selecting right. for those uh, young women and uh, young men. Well, young women would be tend to be shorter, right? I right. think that's fair. Um, obviously incredibly athletic. Um, but the training did not make them short, right? I think okay. that's really sort of an interesting concept to think about. We are selecting for a population that has had success. And the argument would be that they're successful because part of the, their success is because of a, a body type or a body size. Right. But the training of making a gymnast does not create a short human being. Okay, because that was actually a question I had mm. um, when you were talking about the epithesis mm. and the cartilage as it's developing. My... Um, question about that was, is the concussion essentially compressing that cartilage? And you're saying no. Uh, no, absolutely. There's actually a particular type of fracture that can be a crush. A compressive that, fracture. A compressive fracture okay. of the growth plate. So it's a particular type of Salter-Harris fracture. Um, and again, that's cartilage in there, and there are very few cells. So, you know, if there is a, if you were to but that drop might be an the, animal from a height, okay. you could absolutely damage growth plates, hands down. Okay. And you could, in essence, quote unquote, stunt the growth of that animal. You could okay. literally crush that growth plate and create premature closing. And we see that, but that's a one time trauma situation in a horse, whether it be a racehorse, whether it be a dressage prospect, whatever it is, not as a result of daily training. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's that's good clarification. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah. So and you know, to start to wrap this up a little bit. I guess what, you know, maybe my overall question is so many people do blame things like kissing spine, Mm. for example, um, on the, you know, so many people look to kissing spine as something that is man-made, um, which it seems like the research I've read, there is a very strong genetic component, but it does seem like there is some human component as well. Would you agree with that on what you've seen? Potentially, I mean that's a tough one. Um, specifically, we can you could talk about you know they're wild horses with kissing spines, so and they're again, humans with kissing spines. Right, don't so carry horses. Are we, yeah. So it's not. It's definitely not just man-made. It right. definitely does have a very strong and, genetic component. Oh, very much so. Right. And breed disposition again. I mean, yeah. something like fifty to sixty percent of OTTBs are going to have some gradation of you know, impingement of the dorsal spines processes. Um, right. And is it... Is it even necessarily right. clinical, right? And oftentimes yeah. it isn't. That's... So, that's I mean, so that's important, you know, in a pre-purchase type of scenario, we've got to be really careful um, to put the whole whole picture together, for instance. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to touch really quickly before we end the episode on mm. OCDs. And mm. I, if we can touch quickly on OCDs, uh, I feel we can like... can make an attempt. <laughs> I we can define like, it and then right. uh, press stop. <laughs> I, yeah, I think, I think OCDs could probably be its own episode, if mm. I'm not 
if I'm not wrong, and what right. you know what we do to treat them. But OCDs do seem like an example of something that shows up in young horses and is genetic. Mm-hmm. But do, for example, OCDs have a man-made component? Do you notice yeah. that 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 OCDs tend to happen more commonly in horses um, that have high level jobs at a young age? That's a great question. And I will probably keep it simple, but uh, um, uh, if I just back up one step, you know, we, I think we, off camera, we were speaking about developmental orthopedic disease. So DOD, developmental orthopedic disease and osteochondrosis is one form of DOD and OCDs are osteochondritis desiccans. And so why that's important is an OCD is a true osteochondral or bone cartilage fragment. So that is one particular type of osteochondrosis. Osteochondrosis uh, could be a uh, osseous cyst-like lesion, for instance, or it could be an OCD or some other things. Or you can have what you just uh, sort of maybe were alluding to, a traumatic OCD. Um, And so Hands down, we all um, believe, and there's really good science, that absolutely there's a genetic component to DOD, osteochondrosis, or OC, let alone OCD. There's not one gene. It's multifactorial. But absolutely, genetics play a huge role, as does nutrition, as does environment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So... um, Absolutely, you're you're very right. I mean, uh, osteochondrosis is truly an abnormality of cartilage as it's turning into bone, and instead of being at the growth plate, we're talking about at the joint surface, and so that cartilage at the end of the bone um, does not completely or adequately calcify and turn into bone, and so you end up with an, a cartilage island um, that is not uh, structurally sound. It cannot withstand its its Cartilage when it should be bone, mm-hmm. um, and that subcartilage bone uh, has some damage there, and it's uh, going to lead to some problems because, again, it's not going to be able to withstand training. It's not going to be able to withstand even being a horse. I mean, there are plenty of wild horses with OCDs, um, and they might end up with a big, big ankle over the course of years and develop a significant arthritis and become lame and sore. Um, so absolutely. Um, do we create OCDs? Not necessarily. Um, but with diet, exercise, other environmental factors, whether it be turnout, uh, super, super young horses um, that are not necessarily skeletally mature, the things that we can do to either protect them or worsen the, the situation. So that brings me to one of my like last questions. Mm-hmm. Which is, do you have any, other than um, doing some progressive workload and turnout, do you have anything that you absolutely do recommend people do with their young horses to support them? Oh, I would would tell you something that I would love for people not to do. Oh. Is that okay? Is that, is that, is that? Yes, that That was my other question. Yeah. Is there there anything you would avoid or really generally support? Yeah, I'll go with the avoid today. Okay. Um, <laughs> we overfeed our young horses. Oh, we overfeed yeah, dramatically. Them. So dramatically, okay. way, way, way too much soluble carbohydrates. Okay, too much carbs. So would you say that the average um, baby horse should basically just be on like a ration balancer for young horses so that they don't get those OCDs to protect yeah. them nutritionally? Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, it's been shown again and again that a, a high carbohydrate feed can absolutely worsen developmental orthopedic disease. So whether it be angular limb deformities, whether it be flexural yeah. deformities, any of these things, whether it be, you know, again, we talked about osteochondrosis, OCDs. We haven't even touched on uh, things like CVM, cervical vertebral malformation. Yeah. Um, all these things are part of uh, DOD. 
and every single one has been shown to have a genetic component, um, environmental component, but also a dietary component. So if there's one thing that we can do, I can't change the genes on a right. horse that's on the ground. Right. Um, and I can't go buy a new farm. I can maybe change the paddock or how much I turn the horse out. But one thing that we can absolutely do as an industry is probably back off on the amount of soluble carbohydrates that we give to young horses. That's really interesting. So maybe we need to look a little bit less at scaling back workload and more at scaling back carbohydrates. Well, there you go. That's top of for new. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> way to, up, to set it all up. Yeah, absolutely. Sum yeah. up the episode. I really would love to have a nutritionist mm-hmm. on. You're sure. They're great um, ones nearby. Are they? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know what? You mentioned uh, cervical malformation, mm. and I think that maybe that was my. I think I, I think hopefully this will officially be the last question of the <laughs> podcast. Um, part of the reason why I had the hypothesis going into going into starting to read about stuff for this episode um, that the axial skeleton might be injured um, by too much uh, too young mm. was essentially because I've worked on so many off-track thoroughbreds that had really, really bad necks. Mm. And I know that kissing spine has a large genetic component and it might have some people component, but the neck issue really has been something that's been on my mind. And I wasn't sure if, um, basically that really aggressive concussion of galloping, which does use a lot of that base of the neck. Um, I wasn't sure if that galloping was contributing to malformation of the cervical vertebrae in a young spine. Hmm. Um, because typically kind of what's, what has been happening in my practice over the last couple of years has been, I work on an off track thoroughbred or some, some other young horses that have been pushed too young too soon. Um, but I've been working on a young, uh, a horse that's around 10 generally, and it's a horse that was pushed very hard, very young, and they're incredibly locked in their neck, and they likely have some neurologic symptoms, hmm. and um, they present with a lot of anxiety and pain, and I'm working on them, and I'm saying, you know, something to me feels really painful in here. It seems like your horse has a really high pain response. I think you should talk to your vet about what's going on with their neck. And then eventually they take an x-ray and the neck either has a very significant amount of arthritis in a relatively young horse in a relatively low workload at the time, or um, they have a genetic, uh, uh, like a congenital deformation. So what what do you have to say about that? What what do you think is going on there? Yeah, I mean, the, the simple comment I would make is that Arthritis is a response okay. to a joint instability. Okay. So whatever leads to that joint instability will undoubtedly lead to arthritis, um, or specifically osteoarthritis, or some people describe it as degenerative joint disease. So anything that causes instability in that joint, uh, whether it's developmental, like cervical vertebral malformation, that's truly a malformation, that's again, part of developmental orthopedic disease, or trauma. So if you see a 10-year-old horse um, that was an OTDB, for instance, um, my personal opinion, I'm not sure I've heard anybody else describe this either, as I'm not sure that arthritis in the neck could be directly associated with galloping. You don't necessarily. think so? Okay. No. And I think it's much more likely, having worked on okay. these horses, they're going to be limited, and during their race career yeah. at least, because of arthritis in their ankles right. and their knees. Okay. Um, 
So you think mm-hmm. maybe the arthritis came later on? I do. Yeah. In, in yeah, your absolutely. case, there. In my case, kissing yeah. spot, dis- dorsal spinous process impingement is a different situation, yeah. um, because again, uh, DSPs have been shown to be found in young horses, and they've been found to be in, in two-year-old racehorses commonly. Severe, severe DSP uh, impingement. DSP. Dorsal spinous process. Yes, I apologize, yeah. but yeah. going back to the the base of the neck issue, that's a horse. I mean, I, I don't, you know. I don't know about that particular case, but it could have flipped over so, any time yes. in its life. Yes. So, and sorry. So, and some that of could those have been horses, as a racehorse. Even it right. could have flipped over. So, it didn't have a developmental lesion or congenital lesion. It had an acquired lesion okay. that led to the same result. So, when we X-ray a horse at ten years old, we don't necessarily see the cartilage or bony lesion that the horse had at birth or at six months old, we see the repercussions of a career that has led to arthritis in that joint. That's kind of deep. So we're seeing, we're seeing the response. We're not necessarily always seeing the cause. cause. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And well, and no, that you do actually bring something up. That's really important is a few of those horses did end up actually having broken necks, Mm. Um, which is, it's crazy to me that that seems, um, that does seem like more common than mm. you would necessarily want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do, uh, I do think that that's really interesting. Mm. So, so essentially what you're saying is you think um, it's very possible that probably neck arthritis is not related to racing, which I, I mean, you I think it's more related right. to the genetics of a horse, whether it be a warm right. blood or whether it be a, a thoroughbred, both can develop CVM. CVM. Cervical vertebral malformation. Okay. Which would then lead to osteoarthritis or neurologic dysfunction, right? Two separate issues there uh, or related uh, related to those dorsal articular facets. But, um, yeah, I I think it would be well accepted that probably um, there's some question as to whether dressage training leads to... Oh, yeah, I 100% think. Yeah, and I'm a dressage rider, and I 100... I 100% think dressage leads to neck arthritis. It's certainly yeah. possible. Um, yeah. you know, we mean, talked about roll curve yeah. 15, 20 years yeah. ago. Um, we certainly can talk about enthesiophytosis of the, the pole and things like that at the nuchal ligament attachment. We can get deep into that. But there, but again, that's a response to training. I'm not saying it's yeah. bad. I'm just saying it's, yeah. a, it's the body's response to training. Um, so uh, the issue becomes... We're just taking a snapshot at a certain age, and we don't know the full history of that animal. We don't know if it got cast or if it flipped over or if it just was completely normal the whole time or if it was born with a lesion. All that we see at 10 years old when we x-ray it is, wow, there was a fracture, or wow, there is a big OCD fragment, or wow, I don't see any of that, but there is a lot of arthritis there. Is that because it's a racehorse? I would argue probably not because it's a racehorse. Okay. But if you x-ray its knees or its ankles, it's going to have some arthritis. <laughs> you know, all of this, I think, to sum up, does bring up what I think of, what weighs in my mind when people ask me questions. You know, I think I have a lot of clients who say, well, I have this horse, you know, that's only four. Am I crazy for doing, like, X? Like, mm. you know, which is never a high level of work, but... So something that I always think about is 
exercise is really good for the body, but the, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Exercise is really good for the body, but there is some damage being done, right? Mm -hmm. Like dressage horses are very likely at some point going to get some level of neck arthritis or some dressage horses, I think would be more likely to get neck arthritis than uh, the standard trail horse. Mm -hmm. You know, the trail horse might be slightly more likely to do a soft, tendon injury because there's they slip and fell on a rock or in mud the show jumper might be more likely to have damage to their front legs mm. because of the concussion effects of landing over a big jump i do think that none of us can totally negate the negative side effects of our sport we just have to weigh the pros and cons and do our best but i don't think anyone is necessarily in the wrong for a horse who has worked really hard in their life having some damage mm -hmm. it that is unfortunately just a side effect of exercise mm -hmm. in any athlete i think any elite athlete has negative uh side effects of being in of being in a high level of exercise throughout their life but i also think that throughout most of their life they probably are healthier overall even if they do have some of those acute issues absolutely i mean the science proves again and again um regardless of discipline um this is what we've reviewed today is that we shouldn't necessarily bubble wrap these animals, you know. Yeah. Um, they need to have adaptations that um, are able to protect them later on in their careers, whether it be the heart, lungs, tendon, ligament, bone, cartilage, et cetera. So, yeah, uh, the science is pretty clear. I mean, the, uh, regardless of discipline, an earlier start uh, will lead to a, probably a more successful career. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Chuck, do you have any yeah. last uh Anything you want to uh, add before we wrap up the episode? No, 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 no. Just uh, don't share my phone number with any uh, uh, <laughs> feed nutritionists or anything like that as far as uh, feeding foals a lot of uh, carbohydrates. You know, if, if it makes you feel any better, I know a couple of breeders and they do agree with you. Mm. They, they are scaling back from carbohydrates yeah. because OCDs are a very hot topic yeah. and it affects their income. So yeah, it's to their benefit. So yeah. awesome. Well, so, thank you so much. I've learned a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me.